thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. First Kings chapter 8 is where you can open if you haven't already. In our study in First Kings, we're watching and learning from the transition from King David to his son Solomon. And if there's anything that we've learned through David's life and through his, the life of God dealing with his people is that God loves his covenant people. He cares for them. He leads, guides, protects them, gives them order in life. The nation of Israel is the apple of his eye. And he desires that they be led by spiritual godly men. That's God's desire, godly leadership. Remember, Even though we've looked at King David, and we know prior to King David was King Saul, and now after King David is Solomon, it wasn't God's heart for the nation of Israel to have a king. God's first and greatest desire was for them to be led led by godly men. But there was a lack of godly men, and a discouragement among the people, and the people rose up, and they demanded a king because they wanted a king like everyone else. They wanted credibility in the world. Listen, there's those times in our lives where we desire that credibility in the world, but you can't have it both ways. When you and I, we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, when we were born again, whether you verbalized it or not, you and I, we became foreign to this world. And if we're not careful, we'll start to want the things of the world that are contrary to God. But here's the thing with God. Even though the elders of the past asked Saul for Saul to be their king, God warned them of the consequences. He told them, this is what you're going to get when you get a king. It's not going to be what you think. He's going to take your kids, the best of your kids, and consign them to war. And he's going to take your stuff, which what we would look at today is he's going to tax you for all the things that he does. He's going to have to get his money from somewhere, and the king's going to get it from you. And he warned them ahead of time. And they said, when they didn't pay attention to the warnings in Scripture and asked for a king nonetheless. And yet, like the nation of Israel, even in our own decisions, because how many of us can say, and there really isn't any one of us that can say, that we've made every right decision, done every right thing with God. None of us have clean hands. None of us make every right decision. None of us completely follow the word of God every day, all day, all the time. None of us do. Our hearts, the Bible says, are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? The Lord, he knows. So even in our own failures, we learn from the nation of Israel, we learn in our own lives, that even in our own failures, God will condescend to our level and be gracious to us. And he is. And he was to them and he is to us. To meet us where we are. To seek to lift us up to a higher level. He says, here, go this way. And we say, no, we want to go this way. And God will meet us over here and say, no, here, go this way. Sometimes that comes in the form of encouragement in Bible study. Sometimes that comes in the form of exhortation. But many times that here, go this way, comes in the form of correction or chastisement or consequences from our own sinful decisions. But God, he meets us. And he's meeting the children of Israel here, and he gave them a good king, David. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good king, a man after God's own heart. And now his son, Solomon, is in the early stages of his life, 
Many believe, and I think from the testimony of Scripture, I agree that he's in the best years of his life, the early years. What we might call in our lives the new believer years, which is unfortunate that we have to go through that. But just like children, we grow up. So we have the early years where we're completely dependent upon the father. And then we get into those adolescent years where we think we don't need our parents anymore. Then we get into the teenage years where we really turn away. Then we get, you know, it's, it's the same way, so similar in our life walking with Jesus. We start dependent, then we kind of feel like we're not, we want to be independent, then we get really independent, then we want to go home. (laughs) I don't know how many of you have ever thought this, but I have. Like, you know, my high school years were so bad that part of me would like to go and redo them. I'd like to do them over again, because I think if I knew the Lord back then, I could do so much better. I mean, I was such a rotten person. But also, I would just like to go back and be a kid again. It would be all right to not have any worries and just eat... uh, lollipops and brownies all the time which is and Reese peanut butter cups was basically what I spent my life doing as a kid and just getting mad that the dinner wasn't ready or whatever like just feed me my dinner you know and like just be dependent again and not have all this responsibility that we live with as adults you ever feel that way is that just me probably not the Reese's peanut butter I'm sure but whatever it is for you so here's Solomon verse 1 Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes of the chiefs, fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Mark that. We're going to spend a little bit of time reminding you of the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord, the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Verse 5. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that cannot be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord in its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark in its poles. And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, so they were there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. And the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel that they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place and the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest, verse 11, could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Verse 12. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Hold your places here. Turn back to Exodus chapter 25. For the sake of those that have never been introduced to the Ark of the Covenant, let's be reminded of studies that we did many, many years ago in the book of Exodus uh, of what the Ark of the Covenant actually is. Exodus chapter 25, we're going to pick up there in verse 8, because this same Ark now is being brought into the temple, the temple that Solomon just built, the temple that he built, with remember, with great urgency. He, he, he built the temple much faster than he built. It was a much more detailed project, but he built it faster than he built his own house. There was an urgency about it. And so now we find they're bringing in the, 
furnishings. And in Exodus chapter 25, notice with me verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its all its furnishings just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half shall be its width. And a cubit and a half is its height. So basically a four by two by two wooden box made of acacia wood. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub on the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. The mercy seat basically is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And cherubim, verse 20, shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall have face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark you shall put the testimony I will give you. And I, there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony of all the things which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it's a box, four by two by two. Overlaid in pure gold inside and out. There were rings put on the four corners so that long poles would go in and that's how it would be carried. Uh, Inside there would be three items. A copy of the Ten Commandments, the testimony. Later Aaron's rod and a jar of manna. And they all had significant representations. However, for the typology, just for our time tonight, I want to focus in on the acacia wood part of the typology because it speaks so much of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like everything that God did was pointing toward coming of Messiah. Everything that God did in the tabernacle and in the temple had significance of the coming of Messiah, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Acacia wood was a harder, darker wood that would last a long time and take a beating. Jesus took a beating for you and me being eternal Acacia wood grew in dry, arid climates. The Bible describes Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Acacia wood, which actually came from a bush-like tree, was actually the type of wood that they would gather the thorns from. It was a thorny bush. And we know that there was a a crown of thorns pressed into the head of Jesus Christ. Acacia wood had a unique property that the Bedouins would pierce the bush for a gum resin that would come out of its trunk. And they would take that resin and use it as a healing balm for those that were hurt and injured. 
In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says that Jesus was wounded for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. I know that many of you weren't around when we were doing Thursday night Bible study uh, way back when, uh, but on Thursday nights we studied through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all five of those books. And all those studies are up on our website and up on our, on our app. So if you really want a, a neat study on the typology of the tabernacle coming through from Genesis, looking at all, the, all those um, that the, the men that God used and establishes his his nation through all the way through to the end with Joseph and then coming in with Moses in Exodus all the way through uh, to Deuteronomy. I would encourage you to listen to those studies, specifically Exodus, because we go into much more depth on the typology of everything in the tabernacle. And it's very, very, very powerful. Um, Like everything in the Bible means something. There's that move today just to move to the New Testament, New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. And listen, we do live in the New Covenant but to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. They go together. Like what is hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Like God is opening eyes. Like, man, the things that the Bible says, the, the Bible tells us the things that prophets were looking into, we get to know today. But it's good to know where they sat and what they received. Do you know the very, the, the beginning of the church, uh, the early church? Well, let's take Jesus, for example. He taught the new covenant from the Old Testament. The, new, the, the early church, through the first hundred years of the early church, they taught the new covenant from the old covenant. You've got to know them both. And so we've gone through quite a bit, and that's part of why we're sticking with the life and times of David and Solomon. We'll get into all the kings, understand the history, because it's powerful stuff. Now, the mercy seat we read was the lid, and it had two cherubim on top uh, of gold, one on each end, their wings outstretched and put on top, and inside were the Ten Commandments, the, and also the, as we saw, the manna, the faithfulness of God, and Aaron's rod. And so glorious a piece of furniture that this is the one that would go on top. Now, I thought it was interesting. If you're still in Exodus, let me just look at it real quick. Let me read it to you. I brought this out in my notes, and I don't want to miss it here. Back in Exodus 25, God says, let's see, in verse 22, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This is the only time we read of God saying that he's going to meet at a specific location was right here on the mercy seat. This is the only time we read of him saying, I will meet you personally at the mercy seat. Because this box was God's solution to the gulf between man and himself. It was the place where failures were covered, where sins were dealt with on the mercy seat. This would be the place where God manifested his presence in a localized way where he accepted the blood that atoned for the sins of the people according to Leviticus chapter 16. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the law inside that once was condemning was covered by blood. That if you can picture this little box with the the angels on top, if you go to Israel with us, we'll take you into the Temple Institute and the last thing we visit in the Temple Institute is a recreation of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. 
And it was there at the Ark of the Covenant that inside the law, the law is not what we live our lives by because the law only reveals that we're failures. <laughs> That's the only reason the law exists. The law exists to be a tutor to us, to teach us in our own ability and, and our own strength. We cannot meet up to God's standards. I mean, in any way, not, there, there's many purposes, you know, practical purposes. But from a spiritual perspective, the Bible says the law is our tutor. It's our schoolmaster. And the lesson it wants to teach us is that you need Jesus Christ. That's the lesson. And so if you come and, you know, sometimes we'll meet people and go, well, I'm a Ten Commandment kind of Christian. That's who I am. I'm a Ten Commandment, and I just keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you, 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 don't, you don't actually keep Ten Commandments perfectly, and you haven't your whole life. A, a careful examination of your life and mine would find we probably have committed more sin uh, than we're willing to admit. But only, it only takes one. It doesn't take a million. It just takes one sin to recognize that the law condemns us. The, the, if you are speeding and you, you get pulled over, which would be totally ironic, but you get pulled over right next to the speed limit sign, and the speed limit sign says 25, and the officer says you were going 35, that sign condemns you. It doesn't encourage you. You say, officer, officer, I didn't see the... Okay, I didn't see that sign. Okay, I'm sorry. And then give me a break, you know. And you start to get out of it. But that sign, all it says to you is you're a lawbreaker. And now it says that to you whether you get pulled over or not. But when you get pulled over, the police officer is like the Holy Spirit confirming it all for you. Saying, I know you got, I know you thought you were going to get away with it. I know you got away with it every day on the way to work, but not today. And I just don't, 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 don't be bent out of shape when you get a ticket. Because speeding hurts people. Speeding is not, it's one of those sins of kind of Christians I can do, you know, kind of like gossip. Gossip's not that big a deal. It's kind of like bagging on people on Facebook. It's not a big a deal. Speeding's not a big a deal. Look, if you get used to breaking the law, you're going to break more law. And when you and I break the law, we're condemned by the law. That's true in the practical realm, and it's also true in the spiritual realm. But you know, they, they put up speed limits for a reason. You know, they want you to slow down, like in our community. Our community is kind of a pass-through, and they use it like a freeway to get from one side to the other. And many, many people that don't live in our little community shoot right through. But you know, kids play on those streets. They play in their front yards. Now I notice, you know, that people are getting so up in arms in our neighborhood where their signs is, you know, drive like your kids live here. Those are signs now in our community. I mean, nobody needs, should be able, nobody should have to tell us to do that. But for those that are driving around and, and there's a quick corner in our neighborhood, so that, that sign is actually right after the quick corner. So obviously they put it up. Maybe their kids accidentally ran out one time. Maybe there was five close calls one time. Maybe somebody didn't make that turn so well and this tire screech, whatever. That sign is just somebody saying, would you please do what's right? And every time you don't, you pass that sign and don't do it. Like, like uh, for me, I don't tend to speed. I'm not saying I don't speed, but like I'm not in a hurry. I like leaving early. I, I mean, I'm sure I go over the speed limit, but it's not, I don't do it on purpose. I mean, seriously, I don't do it on purpose. I'm not, I'm not usually in a hurry. But when I drive by that sign, I always remind myself, my kids live in this neighborhood, so I do drive like that. I mean, they're not kid, little kids anymore, but my kids live in this neighborhood, so I, I agree with them. I agree with them. The law is condemning. Spiritually, the law is condemning. 
The problem is we don't agree. And the weight of condemnation can destroy a person. The weight of condemnation can make a person suicidal. The, the weight of condemnation with a sense of hopelessness can make a person feel like there's just nothing left for them. And the way to get out from under condemnation of the law is to take the blood of Jesus Christ who took that penalty of the law for you. That's the way to get out from under it. The mercy seat for the children of Israel represented the covering of their sin. That, that which condemned them was covered by the blood. It's such a powerful picture. Don't miss this. This is what God is saying. I will meet you. I will meet with you. I will speak with you. I will give you. And God is the initiator. I will help you if you meet me here. That's all you got to do is meet him. He'll do the work. You and I meet him. He'll do the work. He has finished the work on the cross for us. But for the children of Israel, if you will just meet me here, if you will just meet me here, I'll minister to you. Where? At the mercy seat. On the ark. God is the initiator in our relationship. We're the responders. He will do for man what man cannot do for himself. We can't remove the condemnation. Even an unbeliever has a conscience. And we as believers have our conscience replaced by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not like we don't have a conscience anymore, but it's far better to have the Holy Spirit living in you. See, it brings to mind uh, so many things that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us. But we can't remove condemnation. You know, burying your condemnation in alcohol doesn't work. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it makes things worse because alcohol is a, a drug. It's a depressant. It, it works with that part of our, our physiological part and the spiritual part when we're under the influence to heighten condemnation. Whether it's heightened after you're sober or for some people, just getting drunk makes them more condemned. They go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but now I'm drunk, so I can't do anything about it. And then maybe you do something while you're drunk, you wake up in jail. I mean, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to live in a numbed way the rest of your life. The blood of Jesus Christ can release you. It doesn't work to run from relationship to relationship thinking that I'll just pass time with people. It doesn't work, but the blood of Jesus Christ will remove it. The children of Israel were told in the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenants, this is where I'll meet you. It, it won't be anywhere else. This is where I'll meet you. I'll meet you at the mercy seat. Very precise. Now, what about uh, the guy on the far end of the children of Israel, on the far end of the country that said, no, 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 no. That's far too far for me. I can't make it up there. I can't bring my offering. I can't bring my sacrifice. I want God to meet me here. I want, I, I, want, I, I know what the law says, and I know what Moses has taught us, but, but I don't want to do that. I, I want him to cover my guilt and shame over here. I don't think it's fair that God would say there's only one place that he can meet me. I don't think it's right. I, I, don't, think, I don't agree with that, some would say. I'm sure in human nature. But God did that for a reason. He wrote that and he, di he distinguished that that would be the place. 
Do you want your guilt and shame removed? It's going to be at the mercy seat. Where? On the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Where? In the tabernacle. That's where it's going to be. It's not going to be in your tent, and it's not going to be your way. It's not going to be your own little box or your own little idol. Or it, it's not, that's the only way. Why? Because the mercy seat is a picture and a type of Jesus Christ. The Bible itself, later in the New Testament, speaks of Jesus being our mercy seat. He's the one that has accomplished that work. He alone is the one. There isn't two ways or three ways for your sins to be forgiven. There isn't two or three or five ways for you to become sober and become a a person that is productive in society. There isn't five or 10 or 15 ways that you will find yourself in heaven. There, There isn't another book on the planet that you will find the truths of God's word. There isn't another way for you to know that you can be right with the God who created you. There's only one way. And it's always been that way, one way. There haven't been two ways. There there was a one way in the Old Testament. And there's one way in the New Testament. And it's the same way. The mercy seat represented the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. You and I, we don't have to go looking for the mercy seat today. We don't have to go looking for, man, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where's the mercy seat? Why? Because we've been given the cross. And Jesus Christ, his blood, his once and for all sacrifice, by faith, as we prayed, and one of the points that we prayed, will give you victory over that which is defeating you today. Victory is by faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin is by faith in Jesus Christ. Hope is by faith in Jesus Christ. One place not two places. Notice the Bible doesn't say, hey, go to Calvary Chapel because that's where your hope is. Your hope is not in Calvary Chapel. Your hope is not in a building. Your hope is not in a pastor. Alone, your hope is found in Jesus Christ. He alone can save you. He alone can change you. And he alone can not only cover your sins because the good news is, is the blood of Jesus Christ no longer covers your sins so that each year the priest would have to come in and lay that blood on the altar of that sacrifice. No, no, no. His sin, I mean his blood, removes sin. Doesn't just cover. Takes away the sin. The sinless one, the sinless one is able to take away our sins. Now when you compare Exodus 25 with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, here's what Hebrews 9 says. One more thing and we will get through the whole chapter. In Hebrews 9, verse 4, it says, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. But in, King, in Kings here, now when now let's fast forward with all that in mind, because I, I know that some of you uh, weren't familiar with the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat, so we, we've covered that. Coming back to 1 Kings, you'll notice back in our study in 1 Kings here, there's only one thing in the Ark of the Covenant, and it is the Ten Commandments. Why? Well, I think there's an important illustration for us to grasp. The miraculous manna and the budding of Aaron's rod are absent to give highlight, to give focus to the steadfastness and reliability of God's word. That's all that's left in the Ark at this time just God's word. It's not the miraculous manna. 
It, it's not what they were fed with faithfulness. The, the, what's being highlighted now as the nation is coming into fruition is the faithfulness of God's word. What lasts, what endures, and what is absolutely essential is the word of God. Signs and wonders, you know, things that God does in the miraculous, those are great, but they pale in comparison to the steadfastness of God's word. As I prayed earlier, I was just so encouraged. I was reminded in some things I was reading today from my own life that how does our faith, like faith is the overcoming, that's the overcoming aspect of our lives and how do we grow our faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as we remember the faithfulness of God, the steadfastness of God, as we get a peek into the ark here, as the ta- Solomon is dedicating the temple, it's just the word of God in there. It's just his words. Jesus would say later in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. You can trust his word. You know God's word is more important than your opinion? I don't get many amens for that, but it's true. We need to learn on a regular basis to submit our opinions to the word of God. But the way things are going in our culture today, people think their opinions are more important than the word of God. And they're not. My opinion doesn't matter. What does God's word say? And I have to train myself because being in places that I am, I'll often be asked the question, hey, Ed, what do you think about this? And if I'm not careful, I'll tell somebody what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. What does God's word say? It doesn't matter what I think. I might change my mind. I might think this one day and then next week I have a different thought. But what doesn't change between Monday here and Tuesday over here is God's word. And I need to learn. And I'm not the only one, so don't be pointing fingers at me. I'm not the only one that needs to learn how to train my mind to think and to share and to be washed by the word of God. To to take it in regularly, knowing that whether I feel it or not, whether I believe it or not, whether I understand it or not, God says his word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for what it is sent. It doesn't say I have to understand it. It doesn't say I have to figure it all out. It doesn't say that I've got to wrestle with the greatest theological things in the world. It doesn't say I have to go to seminary for 10 years. All it says is get the word of God in you, read the Bible, Ed, and your faith will be built up. And I'll give you understanding when you need it. Don't you understand? You know, I think that in life sometimes we're on a need-to-know basis. And how often we don't need to know. But when we do need to know, we find out. And so per- turning our, t- our hearts and attention toward the word is so important. So here's Solomon. He's dedicating the temple. And here's the Ark of the Covenant coming in. It's, a, it's, no, it's no small thing that the Ark of the Covenant is coming in. It's no small thing that the mercy seat is there. That is still going to be the place where God says, I will meet you there. You come in. That's where I'll cover sin. That's where I want the high priest to come in once a year with the sacrifice. And that's where sin will be covered. It's going to be that way in the temple. This is God's will pointing to Jesus Christ. And notice verse 14. The king turned around. This is back in 1 Kings now. The king turned around and he blessed the whole congregation of Israel while the congregation of Israel was still standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. 
But I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, that's the temple, you did well that it was in your heart. And by the way, let me just pause there for a second. God will put things on our heart. He he will put desires in our heart. But like David, he won't allow us to complete them. But it's still good that God put it in your heart. I know it gets discouraging. I'm sure it was discouraging for David that, man, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He loved God so much. But God said no. I think of Paul in another. What I'm referring to in, a, in Christianese, you know, language we may throw around, is I'm talking about a closed door. I'm cl- talking about, man, I have this desire. I think it's from the Lord. But then God says no. I think of Paul the Apostle, he's going, he's going around wanting to do a great thing, plant churches, plant churches. I want to plant churches. I want to find a place where there isn't a church and plant a church. That's what brought us to, to Aurora, although it wasn't like there was no church here, but we wanted to be in a place where there was a need for the kind of ministry that God has called us to, verse by verse teaching, and that's how we ended up in Aurora. I, I share that heart with Paul very similarly. And, and so here he is wanting to go, and the Bible speaks of him wanting to go into Asia And the Holy Spirit said no. As a matter of fact, I think the phrase is the Holy Spirit forbid him. What do you mean forbid me? I want to plant a church. No. So he says, okay, well, if you won't let me there, then I'll try around here. And God said no, which then led him to get a vision. He ends up going down to Philippi, and he gets to meet uh, the woman at the, the, the women that were praying by the river, and he plants a church in Philippi. Like, so God wanted to use him, but not there. That's an example just like David. I want to do something. I believe planting churches and reaching people with the gospel is from you, Lord, but God says no. So you can have real spiritual desires and God could tell you no. And I just want you to know, it's still good that you had that desire. That's what the Bible says here. It's still good. It's still good that you want to do something for the Lord. It's still good that you want to obey him. It's still good even if God says no. And once you get over the pain, you'll see it you'll look back and you'll begin to appreciate the nose of God. You don't, like him in the, you don't like him in the beginning and you don't like him in the middle of him <laughs> and you don't like him pretty much all the time. But you can look back and say, you know, I remember when God said no and he really used that in my life. I'm really glad that he turned me in a new direction or like David, you know, he didn't get to see it but like David, man, it was so good that my son got to do that. I didn't get to do it, but my boy did. That's pretty cool. I get to see the next generation raised up. I mean, so he, David didn't get to see that. I don't know what people in heaven actually get to see. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how that all works. Maybe he did. I mean, God hasn't revealed exactly how that all works, but it's good that you had that desire. Don't give up on the Lord because he closed the door on you. It's good that you had that desire. And it's good if someone else got to be a part of it, even if it doesn't feel good. That's how the Lord is sometimes and our emotions. Okay, where are we? Verse 19, nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall come from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. So the Lord fulfilled his word, which he spoke. And that's kind of a cool thing in verse 20 because they're standing right next to the temple. They're like, the Lord fulfilled his word. Look at it. Here we are. This is it. God did what he said he was going to do. And that promise is still true for you. God is going to do what he said he's going to do in your life. 
And the proof is right there. And can you imagine what a feeling that is? God has fulfilled his word. Well, I don't see it. Dude, it's right here. You're standing in front of it. Like some of you are like really wrestling right now with that very fact. Well, God didn't do. Listen, you're here. You're surrounded by people that God has done a work in. And he's doing a work in you. You are, you are surrounded by people that are walking testimonies of the faithfulness of God. So you keep walking by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And one day you're going to be a testimony. But even while you're walking by faith, even while you're taking the next step, you're a testimony to the faithfulness of God. The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day. It, it will be completed. That, that he will perfect, the Bible says, that which concerns you. He will bring it to fruition. So the people are blessed. The temple is there. He turns around and blesses them and encourages them with the faithfulness of God. He reminds them that God has fulfilled his word. David didn't get to do it, but still David's desire was, was a good desire. Verse 21. And there I've made a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord, which he made for our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's where we're going to stop today. We're not going to make it. I'm not even going to try. I think the Lord took us on a little detour with a little bit more time of just remembering the mercy seat, remembering the faithfulness of God, remembering the word of God. I know sometimes you're sitting in a Bible study and you might be kind of arguing with me a little bit. Man, that's so simple. I already know that, Ed. But the reality is, is do we really? We need to be reminded so many times of the faithfulness of God. We need to be reminded so many times that it's God's will, not our will. Do you know the Bible teaches us that a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. That there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That, that the best thing that we can do is submit ourselves to the will of God, to the gracious faithfulness of God, to, to keep in mind, you know, it was just a building, the temple, but it was a building dedicated to be used by God just a building. That's all it was. It was just a building. But that building was a testimony of the faithfulness of God. It was the testimony of his presence among his people. It was a testimony of the the faithfulness of David in his life. It was a testimony that God still speaks to his people. It was a testimony that you can start something and finish something. It's a testimony that you bring in the Ark of the Covenant so God can meet you with you here. You have the place, the one place where your sins will be covered. Over, I know it was just a building. I know it was just brick and mortar, if you will. But it was much more than that. That box was just a wooden box overlaid in gold. It wasn't even made of pure gold. Why did God not make it out of pure gold? Because the wood was a picture. And so was the gold. The wood had significance. It would be easy to look at the Ark of the Covenant and go, well, what's the big deal? It's just wood, acacia wood. I got bush. I, got, I pay guys to get that out of my backyard. And that's going to be the most important piece of furniture in the temple? Yeah, why? Because God said so. Yeah, but I don't understand. It's dumb. I've got all, I've got all kinds. I've got scrap. I put that in the fire. Well, it doesn't matter if you understand or not. That's what God wants. Appreciate it until you get the revelation of why he's doing it. Trust him. I mean, that's a word from the Lord for some of you. It could be radio. It could be here in the room. I know the Lord's speaking to my heart about that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't say it comes by studying the word of God, although that's good. Doesn't say it come by understanding the word. Oh, that's good. Just hear it. Read it out loud. 
play a little app on your phone and have somebody else read it to you. Read it to your kids before you go to bed. When, you were, when we're praying, what are we teaching you how to do? How, you know, all this time of prayer, what do you think we're doing? We're teaching you how to pray. Why? Because you learn how to pray by praying. And one of the things we're trying to get you to do, and there's a lot of things we're trying to get you to do, but this latest one that we're really emphasizing, where you notice it or not, is to pray with an open Bible and read the scripture before you pray. Just read it. And it was so encouraging to hear the victory of the Lord. And it was so encouraging to hear that from the victory of the Lord came the exhortation, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Where does that come from? The victory of Jesus. Nobody needed to teach you that. All you need to do is read it. It was right there to take right off the pages so to inspire your prayer. That was my scripture. That's why it's on my mind. That was the one I had. And I was just so encouraged as I was reading. I was like, victory, steadfastness, immovability. And I began to pray about the things that move me. I began to pray about the things that make me unstable. And some people came to mind and I brought them before the Lord. I didn't bring their name up, but the Lord knows who they are. And I brought them before the Lord who's been a little movable lately. It's been a little unstable. They love the Lord, but man, things just coming. And, and, and what is it? What is it that brings back stability? What is it that brings back strength? The victory that Jesus has already. So why the, ta- why the little box, acacia wood? Why, over- why the mercy seat? Because things in the New Testament wouldn't make sense if the ark wasn't done the way that God said it was supposed to be done. We wouldn't be able to be talking about the faithfulness of God in the span of thousands of years that God had a plan and a purpose for what's going on in that little box and it pointed to a cross thousands of years ahead of time. And it wasn't for David to make it and it wasn't for David to build that temple at this time. It was for Solomon to do it. Even though David really wanted to, I'm sure he was bummed out when he found out he couldn't, but it was still a good desire. Man, I'm telling you guys. I went through the school this morning saying hi to the kids and and I walked into different, depending on what class it was, I had a different conversation with the kids. And in one of the older classes, maybe sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I think, um, I asked them what they, you know, what were their devos before class? Because man, you know, you got to get up early, you got to eat, got to run, got to go. And so I'm like, well, what would you guys do? And, and they're kind of looking at me like, well, we haven't done devos yet. And I go, I, I said, no, not devos like here before you come here. And, and out of the class, a couple kids were sharing, you know, I did devos. Uh, one didn't remember, but that's fine. It's okay. And one shared on the Proverbs. They went through the Proverbs, but also I don't think he remembered either. But for, for, for them, when I'm walking through there, which I don't get to do very often, when I walked through there, that class, the Lord wanted me to encourage them in the word of God. Then I walked through and I went through another class and um, they were much younger kiddos. Man, was, they were learning how to write to 100, which was great. So one of the kids wanted to meet, me to hang out until he wrote to 100. And I said, why don't you do 10? Let's do 10. <laughs> and so he finishes his name and he writes one all the way through 10. I go, man, that's awesome. And I just felt like the Lord wanted me to encourage him because he was a lefty. And I said, hey, my dad was a lefty. And who else is lefties in here? And so there were like three or four other kids with lefties. Yay. And then I wanted to make sure. And I said, man, that's a special thing to write left-handed. I can't write left-handed. And, and talking to them. But then I don't want to leave the right-handers out either. I said, I'm a right-hander. But you know, God made right-handers too. And so coming in, wanting to establish them, that God made you special. Like, you might write differently, but God made you that way. 
And you might write like this way, but God made you that way. Like the, the reality of the presence of God in our lives, we've got to wake up with the consciousness of God in our lives. And I did something different with each of the kids that I went through and, and just really encouraged them just in a, a little bit to get their eyes on the Lord. To, to, in, at their level and their age, I, couldn't, I didn't talk to all of them, and, and just see, just see the opportunities. Like, like to me, I think that's how the Lord sees us as he goes through the room. And for some of you, he's affirming that, God, I, I made you the way you are. It might be a little different. You might think a little different. You might be creative. You might be more analytical. You, you may not read very well. You might, but, but, but that's, that's how I'm going to use you. Some of you, God, he might be walking through today just as a loving father to you, just affirming to you that I, that I know you're single, but I'm with you. You're not someone that's less special than a married person. I love you the way you are. Some of you might have walked in with such a heavy burden in your marriage. And you're just like, the Lord is walking through and saying, I, I know it's hard in your marriage right now, but I'm with you. Some of you are just wondering, like, whatever your relationship with God is at all, and God has you here saying, I love you. I sent my son, Jesus Christ. It started with a box, but it ended with a cross. Really, it didn't really end with a cross. It ended with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's alive today. But the final work of Jesus was on the cross. This is an exciting, so I, now that we didn't finish, you'll have time to read ahead. And I encourage you to do that. I know that we've been taking time on Wednesdays to have guests and missionaries, and we're going to continue to do that because we want, we want to hear from them, man. They stir up faith. It's awesome. And some of the guests coming through, is just awesome. I'm getting encouraged. And I get to sit and receive from the Lord, too, in our own church. So that's awesome. But um, read ahead. Get familiar with it because as you're reading, your faith's going to be built, and God's going to give you things before you ever come on a Wednesday. And sometimes I'm going to confirm that. Sometimes I'm going to add to it. Sometimes you're going to add. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when you just read the Bible and allow the Holy Spirit. And remember that the Father, he loves you. How joyful this day must have been. All the hard work. All the waiting. How wonderful is the king turns around and blesses the whole congregation of Israel and says that God is so faithful. He kept his word. It's right here. We're going to get to worship in it. We're going to gather together. And it's so good to see God fulfill his word. In Psalm 138, verse 8, let me read it to you from the New Living. The Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me for you made me. That's the New King James uh, scripture that I quoted, that the Lord will perfect his work. Sometimes the new living just blows it up, man. I love this. Listen, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me, for you made me. Oh, man. And you know what the promise of God is? I will never leave you or forsake you, even if you feel like it. Go ahead and say, Lord, don't abandon me. And he's going to say, I promise to never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. And in Philippians 1, 6 was the other verse. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. For I am sure that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes back again. 
There might be a detour, it might be a delay, there might be difficulties. I didn't mean for all those to be D words, but it worked really good. <laughs> but God's going to complete his work. I promise you that. Not on the authority of Ed Taylor, but on the authority of God's word. And that's where we'll end tonight. So God, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your mercy. What it would have been like to stand with Solomon and to see the temple built, all the hard work. You used the hands. You used the offering. You even used unbelievers to build that work and to supply this, the needs. And, but it was just a building, for sure. It's just a building. It's just a building. And it was destroyed later on. It was just a building. But it was more than a building. It was a picture and a type. It was a reminder of your faithfulness. That box, it was just a box, just wood, just, just brush-type wood, just wood that was, they made crowns, the wood that they got gum out of to, for healing purposes. It was just wood. Why wood? Why don't we make it a gold? Gold's way better than wood. Well, because, God, you had a plan and a purpose for making it in wood because you would use wood many years later to forgive our sins to rescue our lives to begin a new work in our families to give us hope for our kids and our grandkids and our siblings and our parents you give us hope God through the blood of Jesus Christ you give us a message to proclaim of your goodness and your grace in a world that doesn't understand it that mocks it in a world that doesn't want anything to do with it in a world that's filled with confusion, a world that doesn't understand their identity. They don't know who they are. They don't understand eternity. They don't know where they're going. They don't understand creation. And they don't know where they came from. And we pray for the world we live in, God. We pray that we would be salt and light. We pray, God, that we would, that we would be caught up in the heavenlies Lord setting our mind on heavenly things bringing people with us talking about you talking about what we've learned encouraging with hope Lord and not just church goers and church attenders and, and, and men and women that go through the motions but we're not reading the Bible with our kids and we're not praying together and we're not, we're not loving God with you God with all our heart soul and mind and we're not loving I'm so grateful you removed the guilt and shame from our life, Lord, by the blood of Jesus. I'm so grateful that you would put mile markers in my life to remind me of your faithfulness. I'm so thankful that even if I've had desires, and I have desires right now that are unfulfilled, that the door is closed. It's still good to have that desire. It's still a good thing. It's not bad. You're working out a plan and a purpose that only you know that my life belongs to you, Lord. That I'm committed to you. And may we affirm that to you as we sing and may we affirm that to you as we fellowship and Lord, that you are working in our lives. You've promised to complete the work. And we just want to have our faith built up. And may we leave here bigger, in our faith, having heard your word, in Jesus' name, amen.
We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.